In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You read that far in God's word. Our passage starts out with a huge crowd, and it's supposed to sound familiar. Uh, Not counting the miracle of the resurrection, the only miracle recorded in each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Today, we study the other miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 15 and also here in Mark chapter 8. And the main point of our sermon is in your bulletin. It says this, Christ has the power to open our minds so that we foster our spiritual understanding. That's our main point, fostering our spiritual understanding. It's even the title. So point one is think. Why did this second feeding miracle sound familiar? Verses 1 through 9. Point 2 is to deduce. Why did Jesus sigh deeply? Not do yet another miracle and sail away, literally. And question 3.3, concede, since the disciples were slow, might we be slow too? First thinking, thinking, thinking. Why this second miracle sounds so familiar? Well, remember, perhaps you remember, I'll just remind you, back in chapter 6, the banquet of the bad King Herod. Remember that? What was the highlight of the bad King Herod's banquet? When he ordered up the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Disgusting, good way to ruin a banquet. Unedifying, shall we say, unedifying banquet. Right after that, Mark presents to us, in chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, a contrast. A good king offering an edifying banquet. 
the Lord Jesus Christ offering the feeding of, of bread and fish to 5,000 people. The, the spacing, you see, the order of his book is what we're trying to notice. And so interesting here, where is the feeding of the 4,000 placed? If you look back to chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, there Mark presented us with Jesus talking with a Syrophoenician woman about the children's breadcrumbs being shared with the dogs. Then you come to our passage, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, where Jesus literally shared bread of the disciples, the children of God, with the crowd of the Gentiles. And you have to admit it was more generous than merely crumbs. But knowing Jesus as we know Jesus in our study so far, we're not talking about physical bread alone, are we? Look at verse 2. Mark informed us that the Gentile crowd had just spent three days with Jesus. Time out, freeze frame, think about this. Think, think, think. Three days with Jesus. It may be that there was some healing going on because people were interested in that and following him. It's how you gather a crowd. But knowing Jesus and his penchant in our gospel so far of not focusing on the healings and focusing on the teachings, if he had access to this Gentile crowd for three days, what is he doing? He's offering spiritual feeding. He's teaching the crowd. The point, after these three days of Jesus teaching the crowd, the point of the 4,000 feeding comes across clear, that because of the compassion of our Lord Jesus, the blessings he was giving to Israel of being their Savior and the spiritual feeding of his teaching is available also to the Gentiles and in generous portions. Three days of teaching, and we're about to see generous portions even of food. For the Gentiles to spend so long of a time, of span, time span away from home and away from food supplies suggests a magnetic teaching from Jesus. In response, a fitting and remarkable enthusiasm and persistence for a largely Gentile crowd to listen to a Jewish rabbi for three full days when they're not just hungry, they're famished. They were hungry to the point of fainting on the walk home. And Jesus is aware of this, verse 3. If I send them away, that statement assumes that Jesus had an influence even over the movements of the crowd. If Jesus kept teaching, they would keep listening and staying. The situation would require Jesus to stop teaching and to dismiss them, to send them away in order for them to depart. And Jesus was aware of his responsibility then for these thousands of people that he had determined the crowd had been so depleted nutritionally that to send them away at this moment for a walk home when this famished would be irresponsible of him and his compassion for the crowd would not allow him to send them home in a physically hungry and nutritionally weakened condition. So a feeding was necessary from anyone who would have compassion. And so Jesus says to his disciples, verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. Inviting the disciples to share his compassion for the crowd. But the disciples didn't catch the lesson, did they? We're disappointed to read the disciples' question in verse 4, seeming to show that they are without eyes, without ears, without memories, or without understanding of how such a crowd... In such a place, a desolate place, could ever be fed. 
it's as if they could not imagine, much less recall, any way for a crowd of thousands of people to be fed in a condition like this, when they themselves had ever so recently seen Jesus himself miraculously feed 5,000 people, how could you forget that? Not to press the point too hard here, but the disciples would also have literally themselves have partaken in eating of the bread and the fish from the first miracle. And still, they seem to have forgotten. I need to point out at this moment a few differences between the two miraculous feedings. The 5,000 were listed as men, males, in Mark 6, verse 44. But here in chapter 8, verse 9, it's less specific as 4,000 people. And we're left to assume a mixed crowd of men and women, perhaps. The 5,000 in the earlier one in chapter 6 were gathered and then commanded to sit for the meal in groups by hundreds and by fifties with sort of a military tone of the feeding plan, very organized. But here in Mark chapter 8, we are in a Gentile territory, and our author gives us no encouragement to see the dimension of ultra-organization or military-style commandments and groupings the Gentiles would not have had the same nationalistic motivation and patterns as the Jews would have had, not fall in line with part of their culture. Along with those differences, we find similarities between the two feedings. The the feeding of the 4,000 here is closely parallel to the feeding of the 5,000, Mark 6, 30 to 44. Think of the similarities. A hungry crowd, the compassion of Jesus, the reaction of the disciples to feeding a crowd in the wilderness— the incredulity of them uh, to be able to think about how that could possibly be done twice, the reaction of the disciples, the command of the crowd to prepare to eat by sitting on the ground, the sequence of verbs that sounds like Jesus instituting a sacrament. Listen, take, give thanks, break, pray. Does that not sound like what we do at the Lord's Supper? Other similarities between both of the feedings are that the crowd was eating and being filled There were even baskets of fragments or pieces left over and the recording of the number of people in the crowd, the content and the presentation, both stories closely matching. And so verse 5, Jesus now asks what to us has become familiar. The exact same question at the exact same juncture in the second feeding miracle that he had asked in the first feeding miracle. It's as if we the readers are shocked to find the same persistent deficiency of understanding in our disciples, which requires once more the remedial review of questions by our teacher Jesus. We read that Jesus patiently, as we as readers are barely patient, started over in educating them when he asked his disciples this plain question in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? Doesn't even sound like an elementary question. They had seven. And of course, it's ludicrous to think, isn't it, that seven loaves could possibly feed 4,000 people no matter how thin your slice is, right? No individual serving size solution could be offered. We're invited to wonder how this little band of followers have been able to grasp anything about Jesus' ministry. Verse 6, Jesus had the crowd sit down, and here we have a verb as if for a meal, like in our homes we would call to everyone saying, come to the table, dinner's ready, is the verb that he's using, prepare yourself for a meal. Verse 7, the fish too, 
in order to mirror the first miracle, we have to add the fish to the loaves. So that's done in verse 7. Verse 8, the crowd did not merely eat a bite. This is the same verb the disciples had used in verse 7. It's a, not necessarily brought across in your translation, but with the meaning both in verse 4 and in verse 8, the meaning is to eat to the full. Think Thanksgiving. They were full. As if to prove it, Mark here lists the statistics. Again, the amount of leftover baskets full of food. They had feasted on bread at the same level they had feasted for three days on the words of Jesus Christ. They were full of teaching. And they were full of bread and fish. Until they were satisfied. Verse 9 after expressing his compassion, after expressing his power, after expressing his teaching, Jesus fed them before their journey home and only after all of their needs were met did Jesus dismiss them. Think, why does the second miracle sound familiar to the first? Because Jesus is about to make a point about the understanding of the disciples that you're caught up on and they don't seem to grasp. Moving to the second point, deduce. Why did Jesus sigh deeply, not do yet another miracle and sail away? Verse 10, Jesus and the disciples got in the boat, traveled across the sea. Different location. You've got to track with where we are now. Upon their arrival now at a new location, verse 11, the Pharisees came and met Jesus there, ready to argue with him. Oh, lovely. Here come the Pharisees. Another similarity, actually, with the first feeding miracle. After Jesus fed the 5,000, he had crossed the lake and immediately came into conflict with the Pharisees in Galilee. Another similarity we're supposed to pick up on. The Pharisees took a self-imposed role, you see, as guardians of religious orthodoxy and practice in their area. If he truly is a rabbi from heaven, then prove it by showing a miracle from heaven. You know, straight from heaven, like Moses did not simply a miracle on earth of multiplying bread. Not only are the Pharisees demanding a miracle to authenticate Jesus' ministry, but we're also given their motive here, to test Jesus, verse 10. They wanted Jesus to fail their test, of course. And therefore, they wanted to be in a position to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the entire community, their Jewish community now. Meanwhile, the goal of Jesus was to get the Jewish crowds to understand his role as the bread of life, the bread of heaven. Just like the previous crowd, the Gentile crowds had understood after three days of teaching and after eating it, he's the bread of life. He wanted to teach his own people, the Jewish people. What's the best way to do that? Well, to arrive there in a boat with his disciples and do the same thing. Maybe a miracle will be needed, maybe just the teaching, but to explain to the crowds for days in the Jewish area the words of God by the Son of God proclaimed. The best teacher ever, the best prophet, just like Jesus had fed the crowd for days with the word of God over in the Gentile area. Jesus knew that they didn't truly want a sign. Verse 12, the phrase Jesus used was a decisive abandonment of these Pharisees. The phrase, truly I say to you, in the Gospel of Mark, typically introduces a solemn statement of judgment. He followed it by asking why this generation seeks a sign and then part of a sentence. The sentence is left hanging in the original Greek. I have every compassion for the English standard and all the other translations. You have to come up something that looks like a full sentence in English. But let me read it to you the way it would appear in original Greek. Truly I say to you, if this generation is given a sign, 
You know what an ellipsis is? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. It just drops off there. And he spins on his heel, as it were, gets in a boat and goes away. The sentence is, truly I say to you, if this generation is given a sign, that's where the sentence ends, and the implicit sign of potential judgment is the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior, just turned around and left you. Is that not loud? And Jesus had only recently arrived, and yet Jesus is now already leaving what's precipitated his, his departure. The Pharisees, they're responsible for Jesus sighing. They're responsible for Jesus leaving, resulting in the crowds not being gathered in Galilee to hear Jesus. Think of it. Those not yet convinced of the message of Jesus being the solution, being the bread of life, would not be offered any further incentives to believe on this trip. No more teaching from Jesus that day. No more miracles, perhaps, that may, may, might have been, been done. No, no more Jesus. He's leaving. Verse 13, when we, we read with understanding, we read rather ominously these three words. He left them. He was willing to teach until people were famished. And he left. He got in with a boat and went to the other side. The disciples came along too. This leaving action shows that sharp decision Jesus made right then and there not to attempt any further to win the hearts and minds of these Pharisees and to conclude that the people as a whole, this generation he calls it, shared the skepticism of their religious leaders. We're supposed to deduce those things. Moving on to our third point, verses 14 and following, concede. Since the disciples were slow, might we be slow too? Um, full disclosure, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> you're going to be drawn in in the third point to examine yourself. So the Pharisees were not given a sign, but the disciples had been given a sign twice of bread multiplied, shared first with a Jewish crowd, the 5,000, then with a Gentile crowd, the 4,000. But two signs later, two miracles later, the disciples seem no wiser. Divine action with bread, divine enlightenment with the lessons of Jesus attached to that bread fully explained have not produced true understanding for the very first followers. The disciples were slow. And so the teacher must now take more steps to get his point across. So after verse 8 told us there were seven baskets full of leftover pieces of bread and fish, the disciples did not think to bring any more than one loaf. Twelve of them entering the boat. Their teacher makes 13, and not a single one of them, and all the wives were going, uh-huh, tell me about it, right? None of them thought of bringing the bread. They have one loaf among them all, verse 10. Then for their sudden second trip in verse 13, they got into the boat again with Jesus. Nothing brought but one loaf. And among all 12 disciples, the situation is embarrassing, even on an earthly and physical level. But we're not talking about physical bread, are we? Our great teacher uses even this teaching moment, verse 15. Jesus cautioned them to watch out for the leaven or the yeast or influence of bad characters. First, the bad influence of the Pharisees, he mentions. And then secondly, the bad influence of Herod. In the first miracle, Jesus was shown to be the true king with a true banquet, if you will, of bread. In contrast to Herod, the bad king, with a bad banquet. 
In the second miracle, the 4,000, Jesus was shown to be the true teacher in contrast with the false teachers, the Pharisees. So don't follow the influence of the Pharisees and don't follow the influence of Herod. You know, the two things matching the two miracles, the 5,000 and the 4,000, but rather follow Jesus the true king instead of Herod, follow Jesus the true prophet instead of the Pharisees. A quick recap from the two miracles, bringing it all home for the disciples. Out of this cautioning statement, a beautiful, uh, salient Summary, what did the disciples pick up? In verse 16, we're ashamed to see the disciples still discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread in the boat just then. Lovely. Our truly patient Savior, verse 17, is aware of the mundane discussion, aware of the sluggishness of their minds and hearts, and asks the disciples eight questions in a row to end our text. You ready for eight questions? Why discuss bread? Verse 17. Second, do you not understand? Verse 17. Third, are your hearts hard? Verse 17. Fourth, do you have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear? Verse 18. Fifth, do you not remember? Verse 18. Sixth, when I broke the bread for 5,000, how many baskets left over? Verse 19. Here he requires an answer. The disciples answer correctly 12 loaves, sorry, 12 baskets of leftovers. Question 7, when I broke the bread for 4,000, how many baskets of leftovers? Verse 20, the disciples answer him correctly, seven baskets of leftovers. His final question, verse 8, hauntingly, verse 21. Sorry, question 8, verse 21. Do you not yet understand? End of text. Are you anything like me and you sort of wish Mark would actually tell us what it is that we're supposed to understand? Are you a little bit wishing that Jesus would have had maybe just one more sentence so that we don't miss what the disciples missed? What was it that we were supposed to understand? Please, I don't want to miss it too. The passage is ended. All we have to do is think and deduce. If five loaves is sufficient for Jesus to feed 5,000 with 12 baskets left, And seven loaves is sufficient for Jesus to feed 4,000 with seven baskets left. Then one loaf in one boat is sufficient to feed Jesus and his 12, the 13 men in the boat. And they're still discussing what to do about bread in a boat because they don't understand the one point. Christ is all we need. He's all we need. If you've got 5,000 hungry, if you've got 4,000 hungry, if you've got 13 hungry, if you have one hungry, he's all we need. He's the bread of life. It's one of those moments where your mom would say, I'm going to smack you upside the head. (laughs) This is so obvious. Christ is our only source for all of our needs, everything from food to truth to endurance to wisdom to rescue to forgiveness to eternal life. The message of Jesus, the bread of life, has gone all the way back to Jesus' birth. In Bethlehem, remember what Bethlehem means? City of bread, house of bread. It's the same message that will continue all the way forward until the very last evening of Jesus' life on earth, alive, when he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. The bread of life. Jesus being the bread of life pictures his suffering for his people by the loaf being broken 
Pictured as power by the miraculous multiplication of bread for thousands. The next story after this, Mark chapter 8, the blind man, miraculously being able to see by action of Jesus and a miracle. And the following passage is the blind man now illustrated in real life. It's Peter becoming able to say, Jesus is the Christ. He speaks on behalf of the disciples. Jesus opens their hearts, opens their minds, opens their eyes, opens their ears. And Peter gives voice to what they should have known because the great teacher can teach no matter how tough the student. The disciples were growing in understanding of Christ, the bread of life, the source of all our needs. Mark is driving home one main point. Jesus is our Savior. The Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. Excuse me, as he records in Mark 10.45. Did the disciples understand this yet? Their lack of understanding is so severe in our chapter that we are actually invited to ask, is there much of a difference between the understanding of the disciples and the understanding of the opposing Pharisees? We conclude that the disciples did not merely need a teacher in order for them to gain understanding and knowledge. The disciples need a savior to save them from the sins of a closed heart, closed mind, closed ears, closed eyes, failed memory. They need a savior. The disciples had started out as dead spiritually, as the Pharisees were dead spiritually, as everyone started out, all the way back to Adam in the original garden. So as the Savior who had come, we think of Jesus who provided the food for the 4,000 people, and we think of how he stood there. Imagine Jesus at that scene, the second feeding of thousands, watching the people gathered and eating across the way. Thousands of people eating, and Jesus is looking. What is he seeing? He knew their condition in need of physical bread, had compassion for it, and provided for it. But we aren't talking about physical bread, are we? He knew their condition in need for spiritual bread. And he knew their hearts were hard. And without Jesus, the second Adam, they were all spiritually dead. And Adam, as dead as the Pharisees, as dead as the disciples, as dead as you and me. And he came as the bread of life, who knew that he, as the living bread, had to be broken for them. He stood on the hill watching them eat, knowing he would cost his life for them to have what they truly need. It's a metaphor, them eating that bread, for him to give his life that they could have life. His compassion for the crowds and their condition is what caused him to feed them a loaf and a fish. And it's a wonderful pointer to his compassion for his people that propelled him to the cross to deal with us in our spiritual condition and our spiritual need. His mighty power to distribute the bread and multiply it on on the fly is shown in the miracle to show how he can meet the need of the crowd, a clear lesson of his mighty power shown in his resurrection to meet our spiritual need the only way possible with his mighty power to rise again from the dead. Twice Jesus fed crowds of thousands to show his compassion, to show his willingness to meet our need, whatever the cost. Once he died to meet our need. Once he rose from the dead to show his unique place of the only provider of spiritual sustenance and spiritual living. He's the bread of life. He's the bread of heaven who was broken for us and conquered death to provide uninterrupted life for us forever. He's more than a teacher who grants understanding. He's our rescuer 
who paid for our sins with his death, grants us forgiveness, grants us life everlasting, and promises us a future. The compassion of Jesus is a bigger point than the disciples knew when he said it to them in verse 2. We still today need God's help to grasp just how much compassion Jesus has for us in our slow condition. Paul writes of it, Ephesians 3.19, he prayed that each Christian would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you not yet understand the love of Christ for you in his heart and in his cross work? I have one concluding application tonight. It's the same as the title of the sermon. Foster your understanding. First of all, let's never forget there's a miracle in the story. Miracle. The bread and the fish were miraculously multiplied, showing us that with our God all things are possible. But also we foster understanding that the hands of the one who made the world put on seven loaves and a few small fish were sufficient for him to feed thousands. Nothing is too difficult for God. Let these final words of Jesus hang with you. That's the intent of Mark. That's the intent of our Savior. To have the words hang with us, haunt us a bit. Do you not yet understand? And they're not meant to haunt you to be some weight to carry around. They're meant to push you somewhere. Until you can say, Lord, I I believe I, I finally get it. I don't understand like I'm supposed to understand. Do you not understand? No, I don't. (laughs) I completely do not. No, I, I don't understand. I need Christ. I should be hungry for you, and I don't even sense that hunger. I desperately need you, and I want to grow in that awareness. I want to grow in experiencing the proper and deepening spiritual hunger to listen to the voice of Jesus. I need Jesus more than I need bread. Lord, I'm not satisfied to simply be in church, be in a worship service, be in a Bible study. I want to hear your voice. Feeding the 4,000 foreshadows, you see, the heavenly feeding of God's people in church in the New Testament age. Christ is here feeding our souls and looking to the future beyond this New Testament age. It's a foreshadowing of the gathering together of those from every nation into heaven with God. It's a foreshadowing of heaven when he feeds his people himself. We get Jesus in heaven. What else are we missing? Ask Jesus to show us once again what he's been trying to show us that I previously missed again and again and again. You, you go take your car and you drive out somewhere where nobody can hear you. And you get out of your car and you shout, I am slow of heart. Lord God, please forgive me. Would you show me once more? I need the patience of Jesus like the disciples did. Maybe you struggle with the sin of worry, such things as whether you'll have enough bread, whether you have enough clothes, whether you have enough money. Place to stay. Christ has been already showing you not to worry, and you keep worrying. Do you understand why it's such a damaging sin? 
The proper response is repentance. Foster our understanding. Maybe you get angry. He's been showing you how anger is wrong. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's joylessness. Maybe it's lack of faithfulness to follow through on your word and your commitments. Maybe you lose control of yourself, spending money, indulging in lust, getting distracted. Whatever it is that Christ has already been working on with you, put your ears on. Hear it. Put your eyes on. See it. Remember he's taught you this before. And he'll patiently teach you Again, maybe you focus on the wrong things. Maybe you lack compassion. Maybe you're not serving well in your position, in your home, in the church. If the disciples could literally be in the boat with Jesus and still miss the point, couldn't you be in a worship service in the New Testament age and miss Jesus? Crave the spiritual lessons of Christ. Ask him to meet you here. Meet me in your word. Meet me in, by your spirit. Deepen your desire for your personal time daily at home with your scriptures. May it be more meaningful. And enjoy the time of study alone with Jesus to deepen your understanding of your true condition and the areas he's showing you ever so patiently that need work. Read great books about the scriptures. Get to classes and studies and training that God has made available for our growth. Use the resources God has provided for us. Foster your spiritual understanding. Let's pray. Father.